Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Cow's milk and dairy is the most common food intolerance reported by Australians over 18. We know that around about 16% of Australians avoid milk for one reason or another, and around 12% of them blame it on GI symptoms. So my name's Joanna Baker. I'm a dietitian. I'm a registered nurse. I spent the first 15 years of my career as an anaesthetic nurse. After my son was born, I had enough of the hospitals, so I completed my Master of Dietetics and I started my private practice, Everyday Nutrition, where I now have a little team of dietitians who specialize in IBS and food sensitivities, and we really aim to help people resolve digestive issues and make peace with food. I do a little bit of work in the food industry, so I work for a company called K-Fiber a little bit. We make a fiber supplement. I've worked in FODMAP testing with FODMAP Friendly, and obviously I'm associated with Deakin University and the Adverse Food Reactions Committee for Dietitians Australia. So before we started this, we did a little bit of a survey and we asked 402 Australian GPs what, they, what questions they had about dairy and milk sensitivities. And you can see that there's a little bit of a word cloud here where it's like intolerance, diagnosis, symptoms, uh, diarrhea, those sorts of things. So I'm hoping to be able to answer a few of those questions for you today. So what I'm gonna cover First of all, how to identify dairy or lactose intolerance and differentiate between the two. Uh, the testing and diagnosis recommendations. What sorts of foods are suitable on a low lactose diet? When it's not lactose, so how to sort of, when to consider if it's not lactose and what to do about it. We'll talk about treatment and referral pathways. And of course, I've got a little case study in here as well. So I'd like to start by introducing you to Sarah. So Sarah's a 55-year-old female. She's married, she's got two teenage children and works full-time in admin. I saw Sarah on four occasions via telehealth um, throughout 2020 and 2021. Obviously, Sarah's not her real name. So when Sarah first presented to me, she came in complaining of constipation on and off since childhood she had identified milk as a trigger and had been on and off a dairy-free diet a few times throughout her life. Since menopause, however, the constipation, bloating and cramps had really stepped up a notch and they were occurring on a daily basis and starting to have quite a significant impact on her quality of life. So they were interfering with social occasions, they were stopping her going out, they were stopping her seeing friends, they were keeping her home, they were stopping her doing things like going swimming, stuff like that. In the last six months, she had been on a low FODMAP diet. She'd had about 50% improvement with this, but to get that 50% improvement, she was having to be super, super, super strict, and as soon as she stepped outside of her safe foods, um, she was getting symptoms again. So she wasn't, wasn't able to relax her diet at all. And in terms of what I see as a dietitian, she was having to be more strict than what I would expect is needed 
to get a resolution in symptoms with a low FODMAP diet. In terms of her medical history, she was fit and healthy. Um, she had had top and tail scopes, which were clear. Her bloods were normal. Stool test was normal. She had her breath tests, a positive breath test for lactose and a negative breath test for fructose malabsorption. And her diet, when she first came to see me, was low FODMAP. She understood it really well. And like I said, she was following it to the T and even more, being more strict than what would normally be expected. So when I talk about dairy intolerance, this includes, uh, so dairy includes cow milk, sheep milk, goat milk, and other mammal milks. Dairy intolerance is different to dairy allergy. So intolerance usually involves digestive systems, while an allergy will involve an immune response. We do see um, cow's milk protein allergy. Usually this affects around about 2% of babies, but most of them will outgrow it by the time they sort of go to primary school. We see dairy intolerance can be due to lactose, the sugar in milk and milk products, or it could also be due to some of the proteins, for example, the A1 beta casein. Symptoms of dairy intolerance, the most common things that I see are things like bloating, diarrhea, constipation, pain, flatulence, and nausea. So lactose. Um, lactose is a disaccharide, double sugar that's bound together quite tightly. Um, in the, when we consume products that contain lactose, lactase is an enzyme that is produced in the brush border of the villi that separates, that breaks the lactose into galactose and glucose so that it can be easily absorbed. Now, lactose maldigestion or lactose malabsorption occurs when somebody has got low levels of lactase, they don't have the ability to break down all of the lactose. And this actually increases with age and is fairly common. Lactose intolerance, on the other hand, is the onset of gastrointestinal symptoms post the ingestion of a lactose-containing substrate that is not observed with a placebo. So lactose intolerance is directly referring to the symptoms, whereas lactose maldigestion or malabsorption is referring to the ability to break down the lactose. Hypolactasia or non-persistence is a deficiency of lactase production. Lactase non-persistence, there's actually a genetic variant which results in the reduction of lactase post-weaning. We see this commonly in Asian, African, and Native American ethnicities. And we can also sometimes see secondary lactose deficiency where the brush border might be damaged by something like celiac disease or Crohn's or a bout, bout of gastro that will result in a temporary lactase deficiency. So in terms of diagnostic testing, um, some of the most common things that I see done is hydrogen breath testing. This is where a substrate of around about 20 to 25 to 50 grams of lactose it is, is administered. The person will then blow into a bag every 20 minutes for a couple of hours, and they'll measure the breath hydrogen, which indicates the fermentation of lactose in the large intestine. Occasionally, people have duodenal biopsies during a gastroscopy where they'll take a biopsy, they'll look at it under the microscope and tell us how much lactase that person is producing. There's obviously a genetic test for that gene variant of lactase non-persistence. Not very often, but occasionally we'll see someone that has had blood glucose testing where they'll have a 50-gram substrate of lactase and then they'll have blood glucose measurements at 30 and 60 minutes if we see a rise that would indicate that the lactose had been absorbed into the bloodstream. 
And finally, the food elimination and rechallenge, which is what I do the majority of the time, and it's actually the gold standard recommended by ASCIA. It would be the structured removal of a suspected trigger, followed by the reintroduction in increasing increments to to observe for a reproducible response in symptoms. And this is really the only way that we can identify if someone actually experiences symptoms after consuming milk or milk products, or other sensitivities as well. So we asked a few doctors or a few medical practitioners what sort of testing they are doing. We got 341 responses. And when patients were presenting to them with GI symptoms that they suspected were related to dairy, the first testing that they were requesting, around a third of them were requesting breath tests. Around two thirds of them were recommending a dairy elimination. 40% were doing celiac antibodies and a smaller number were doing things like stool microscopy, fecal calprotectin and other types of tests. So I also thought it would be interesting to survey a group of patients about the types of testing they'd been done, had done. So I jumped into a Facebook group that was targeted at people who have got irritable bowel syndrome. And I got 649 responses to what testing did you have to be diagnosed with lactose intolerance? And around 20% of them had breath tests, 50% of food challenge, a smaller number were having blood glucose measurements, 12% had scopes, and nearly 10% had had no testing at all and had self-diagnosed. So in terms of lactose breath testing, it, it is a fairly common test done, but I think it's quite important to recognize some of the limitations of breath testing. So breath tests do absolutely identify lactose maldigestion, um, which by that I mean they identify if someone has got low level of lactase and they have the inability to digest lactose. The thing is, in our community, we know from, re well, we know from research that around 70% of Australian adults will maldigest lactose and get a positive breath test result. Yet, we also know that only 12% of people will actually report getting gastrointestinal symptoms after consuming milk or milk products. So there's a very large number of people there who test positive on a breath test but don't get symptoms when they drink milk. In terms of the test dose substrate, it's 25 to 50 milligrams of lactose that is used. Now that's the equivalent of around 500 mils to a litre of milk all in one sitting. My question is, how many people are drinking 500 mils to a litre of milk in one sitting in their daily diet? And is that actually relevant to what people are doing out in the community when they are consuming their foods? There was actually a 200... 2017 review that looked at the evidence surrounding breath tests and the clinical relevance. And what they found is that there was a really wide variation in testing parameters and a very wide variation in terms of in the interpretation of the results of those breath tests. They found that breath tests were not re reproducible in the same person. And absolutely, I've had people that have come into me and said, well, I had a lactose breath test last year, which was negative, and I've had another one this year, which is positive, and now I don't really know what to do with the results. So they're not reproducible. And we also find that people with abdominal symptoms get similar results to people who do not have abdominal symptoms. Now, in terms of lactose maldigestion or lactose intolerance, it doesn't damage the body. It's not dangerous, and our goal of managing it is purely to manage symptoms and improve quality of life. So my question is, do 
breath test actually overdiagnose lactose intolerance and does it lead to unnecessary over-restriction and fear and anxiety around products that potentially may contain lactose. In terms of the ASCIA, so the Australasian Society for Clinical Immunology and Allergy, the recommendations from them to identify a food sensitivity is a structured elimination diet followed by reintroduction. So what we would do, we would start, the first step would be to obviously exclude possible medical causes. So we might be testing someone for celiac disease and we might be investigating any red flag symptoms to see if there's anything serious going on that needs to be addressed. If they will come back clear or managed, um, the next thing would be to query, do the symptoms actually appear to be linked to milk? And to do that, we would check their diet. So you'd be asking things like, what symptoms are you experiencing? How long have you been getting symptoms? How often are they occurring? Do they occur after eating or drinking dairy? And if so, what types of dairy? And is it dose dependent? So do you have to have a lot of it before it becomes a problem or just a little bit before it becomes a problem? Do you get these symptoms after eating other foods? Have you made any changes to your diet? And if so, what happened as a result of that? And it's also interesting to ask if anybody else in the same family experiences a reaction to dairy as well. Because we, we do see these sensitivities tend to cluster in family groups. If it does appear to be linked to dairy or lactose, we would then recommend switching to a low lactose diet for about two weeks. Some people will go up to four weeks or six weeks, but two weeks is usually more than enough to answer the question of does removing lactose from your diet mean that your symptoms resolve or not? If the symptoms did resolve, we know we're on the right path, but we still haven't confirmed that it was actually lactose that was causing the symptoms. The way we identify if lactose is causing the symptoms is if we can actually cause those symptoms to occur by giving the person a la lactose to drink. And if we can reproducibly cause those symptoms to happen, then we can be confident that yes, we have identified that lactose as a trigger. So we would start by a trial reintroduction of lactose. We would observe the symptoms. If symptoms occur and you're fairly confident this is lactose sensitivity, you would then counsel them on a low lactose diet. You would suggest to them lactase tablets, which are super beneficial for people who are lactose intolerant. And you would assess them for their calcium intake and their vitamin D status because we want to preserve their bone density, obviously, in the long term. If symptoms do not occur with reintroduction, then we haven't identified yet why they improved by removing the milk or the lactose from their diet. And in that situation, I would then recommend referring on to an accredited practicing dietitian for further investigation of food triggers to do a little bit more digging about what actually is going on. If their symptoms didn't resolve by removing lactose, again, at that point, I would be referring to a dietitian for further assessment and looking into intolerances for other potential sensitivities and other parts of milk that can potentially cause issues. So a low lactose diet. We've known about lactose intolerance since the late 1950s, early 1960s was when it was first mentioned in research. So we've got mountains of research on what, how lactose intolerance actually affects people and how much milk they can have before it becomes an issue. So we know that most people who are lactose intolerant will get away with around four to seven grams of lactose in a sitting, and that's around about a quarter of a cup to half a cup of milk. So it, it's enough for a cup of tea or coffee, but it's probably not enough for a large latte. 
they'll get away with around 12 grams of lactose spread out across the day, and their tolerance will actually improve if they're consuming the milk with solid food. Then they'll get away with a little bit more. Uh, yogurt and kefir will actually be a little bit lower in lactose due to the presence of live bacteria, and Greek yogurt is also lower in lactose because when it's made traditionally, it's strained and all that watery whey, which is where the lactose is, is discarded. So we end up with a lower lactose product. So low lactose diet, cheese, butter, cream cheese, they're all negligible in terms of lactose. They're not there, they're pretty much lactose free. We can see once we start heading onto cream and our wet cheeses like ricotta, ice cream, the lactose content starts increasing a bit. And then once we get to yogurt, goat milk and cow's milk, that's where the majority of foods are that contain lactose that people would be limiting on a low lactose diet. So what would we be limiting? Or what would we be including on a low lactose diet? I always like to work from what can you have in your diet or what can you eat rather than what you can't eat. So we'd be including lactose-free milk, lactose-free yogurt, lactose-free ice cream, lactose-free custard. We'd be absolutely including small serves of regular milk throughout the day. So if someone's out and they're having a cup of tea with a friend, then absolutely have some regular milk there. They should be fine with that. We'd be including small amounts of cream, small amounts of fresh cheeses like your ricottas and your cottage cheeses, hard cheese and butter. In terms of lactose, basically lactose-free. There is no need to limit that. There is no need to buy specialty products regardless of the fact that they exist. We do not need, there's no difference between lactose-free cheese and regular cheese. Lactase tablets are super helpful. So we make lactose-free milk by adding the lactose enzyme to the milk during production, you can actually buy lactase enzymes from the chemist and you can take a lactase enzyme tablet with your large latte and the tablet will break down the lactose as you're consuming it. So super beneficial for people with lactose intolerance. Whey protein, protein whey is the protein in milk whereas lactose is the sugar in milk. So if the protein has been isolated, then that's going to be lactose free as well. What we would be avoiding is large amounts of goat's milk, cow's milk, sheep's milk. We'd be avoiding milk powder and white hydrolysate, which all contain higher levels of lactose. So what about when it's not lactose? Lactose is one molecule in milk that can cause problems, but there are other molecules in milk that we do see people have sensitivities to as well. So we've got the A1 beta casein versus the A2 beta casein. Most milk on our market is a mix of A1 and A2, um, whereas the A2 milk, or A2 only milk, has a different protein structure, which appears in some people to elicit fewer symptoms. We see milk allergy, which I mentioned earlier, about 2% of babies are allergic to cow milk. They will outgrow this. So if, some, if it's an adult or an older child turning up, it's very unlikely that they're going to have a milk allergy. Amines. There's not a huge amount of research on amines, and we don't see them very often, but we do know that people who are amine sensitive can get gastrointestinal symptoms from their sensitivity, and we do see amines in aged cheeses and fermented dairy products, so if someone is identifying those in particular, so camembert bothers me or parmesan bothers me, but Swiss cheese and mozzarella don't, potentially that could be an amine thing. The fat content, if someone's identifying cheese or ice cream in particular as triggering them, high fat does slow digestion, it impairs gas clearance, so we can see symptoms after that. 
The other thing is the longer I'm in this little corner of dietetics, the more I realize that what we know about food sensitivity and food intolerance at this point is just the tip of the iceberg. I see so many people whose bodies haven't read the textbook and we're doing N equals one studies to find their sensitivity because science just has not, we don't know enough about it to define it yet. So that definitely happens. In terms of the difference between A1 and A2 beta caseins, so obviously the beta caseins are protein chains uh, made up of amino acids. And where the difference between the two is comes up at position 67 on the amino acid chain. Um, on the A2 protein, we see proline is the amino acid, and on the A1, we see histidine as the amino acid. And what difference that causes is that the presence of histidine causes the preferential release of a peptide called beta-caseomorphine 7 or BCM7, whereas the proline in the A2 milk actually limits the release of the BCM7 molecule. And why is this important? So BCM7 has opioid-like characteristics, and it's been shown to bind to the mu opioid receptors in the GI tract. We know that the amount of BCM7 in milk is consistent with pharmacological effects, and we know that gut transit is influenced by mu opioid receptors in humans in the same way as codeine and morphine affect gut transit. Interestingly, in animal studies, BCM7 has been shown to consistently delay gut transit and, and slow, in, slow intestinal transit and delay gastric emptying. And what I thought was super interesting, the anesthetic nurse and me, they found that Narcan could actually, had actually been found to block the activity of BCM7 in animal studies as well. So that was my little bit of mind-blowing. In terms of when, to, when you're going to refer to a dietitian, so if you've got someone with multiple food sensitivities and is restricting multiple foods, that's going to affect their nutritional intake. They're going to be less likely to be meeting their nutritional needs. And you'd be wanting to call in a dietitian to at least check their diet and make sure that they're not missing out on anything important. Children have little tummies and they have high needs for growth and development. You really want to have a dietitian overseeing any child that's on a restrictive diet so that we can support that growth and development in the long term. People with unexplained weight loss, obviously we want a few more investigations to work out why they are having weight loss. But again, that would be a good time to call in a dietitian to see if we can halt some of that weight loss and perhaps regain some of that lost weight. Food fear, anxiety and eating disorder history 99% of my patients have food intolerances or they have irritable bowel syndrome. They are fearful of food, but particularly if they don't know what is triggering them. Every time they're eat, they are wondering, is this going to cause me problems? Am I going to be out and about? Am I going to need a toilet in a hurry? I see so much fear and anxiety based around food choices. So if you see any of that, again, that's when you want to be calling in a dietitian, calling in a therapist to help... Uh, hopefully head that off before it gets quite serious. We also know that elimination diets can actually uh, lead on to eating disorders or if someone's had an eating disorder, an elimination diet can cause that to reoccur again. Anyone who's not responding to first-line treatments, again, we'd refer them on to a dietitian as well. So to come back to Sarah briefly, 
like I said, Sarah's fit and healthy. She doesn't have any medications. She is constipated. She's opening her bowels just two or three times a week. It's difficult to pass. It takes her time. And she uses Movacol occasionally to help that out. She's experiencing bloating and cramping, which have improved about 50% on a low FODMAP diet, but she has to be super strict to achieve that. There's no red flags. All her testing is all normal. Her breath test was positive for lactose, and that's really the only diagnostic test that showed up. She tried a low FODMAP diet, and in fact, she was still following a low FODMAP diet. That helped her 50%. She tried a gluten-free diet, which did absolutely nothing, and she'd been on and off a dairy-free diet throughout her life. So what we did with Sarah, what we, deci we decided to keep her low FODMAP as well because she was particularly fearful about reintroducing any foods at that point. So she actually, she wanted to get her symptoms a bit more well managed before she was prepared to give something a try. So I gave her some additional resources, recipes and product suggestions to hopefully help relax her a little bit and not need to be as strict and rigid with her diet. Given her history with dairy, we decided to remove all dairy at that point, and I gave her some alternative options, and particularly paying attention to making sure that she was getting enough calcium and that her nutritional needs were being met, even though we were removing an entire food group. We also decided to treat the constipation, and if you've never used kiwi fruit or K-fiber for constipation, I highly recommend it. It's absolutely magical. So when Sarah came back to me after four weeks, she had had a significant improvement in all her symptoms. Her bloating and cramps have resolved and she was opening her bowels daily. So our next step then was to trial reintroducing things. And what we found is that A2 milk with the added lactase enzyme, so lactose-free A2 milk, she tolerated that really well. So we decided to try it without the added lactase and she also tolerated that really well as well, even though she had had a positive breath test. When we tried the regular milk, she did find that she began to get constipated again, so she took that out again, and we tried the FODMAPs. Legumes gave her a little bit of gas, but it was, it was not a huge amount, and all of the other FODMAPs, onion, garlic, wheat, apples, pears, all of those were super well tolerated, so she added those back in easily. And then we tried to dabble in a little bit of other things like cheese and ice cream, which she got away with in small amounts. When she came back to me a year later, she was super happy. She had no gut concerns at all. Her diet was wide and varied. She was limiting legumes a little bit. She was using A2 milk at home. When she went out, she might occasionally have a little bit of regular ice cream or regular cheese or something, and she managed that as necessary. She didn't have the frustration of the unknown as a result. And what that did for her mental health was huge. Because what she came back to me and said is, oh my God, I'm enjoying food again. I'm going out to dinner. I'm spending time with my friends and I'm traveling. And I can't thank you enough for the improvement in my quality of life. So to summarize, lactose maldigestion is super, super common. But it does not mean that someone is also lactose intolerant. In fact, most people who maldigest lactose are not lactose intolerant. Most people who are lactose intolerant still produce some lactase and they get away with small serves of milk and uh, things like cheese and butter without any problems. Diagnostic testing does identify lactose maldigestion, but it does not convincingly identify lactose intolerance and potentially overdiagnoses it. And if, whereas a food challenge is really the only way to know if someone actually experiences those symptoms that are detrimental to quality of life. 
Of course, lactose is not the only molecule that can cause digestive symptoms. Food variety and flexibility, this is something that's really close to my heart. We don't only eat for nutrition, we eat for pleasure, we eat for joy, we eat for comfort, we eat for uh, celebration, we eat for religious reasons, we eat for social connection. As soon as you are limiting someone's diet, it is impacting their quality of life and it is detrimental. So it's super important with someone on a limited diet to look after their mental health just as much as we're looking after their physical health. And absolutely, a specialist dietitian can help you at all stages, including identification and management of food sensitivities. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.